On this show, we talk a lot about people's experiences at the intersection of culture and identity, and it often goes without saying that this often comes with a lot of pain. The pain of always being reminded of how different you are, the pain of having the very essence of your being constantly being chipped away at through racism, marginalization, and oppression, and the trauma of working through those experiences to come to a place of acceptance and love. But can there also be joy in this journey and joy in fighting for change? Can there truly be rest as resistance? In this episode, I am joined by Hijiyi, also known as Erica, who is an academic teaching and researching in sociology at a university here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We talk about her childhood growing up in South Korea, migrating and assimilating into society in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland, what activism looks like to her, and how she incorporates joy into that, rather than focusing only on the trauma and pain. You were born in Korea and then you lived there until you were about 11 before moving to New Zealand. Can you tell me about what it was like growing up in Korea at that time? Growing up in Korea was fun. I moved around a lot because both my parents were working and so basically my grandparents raised me and all my mum's younger siblings because I grew up in a home of like it was a like big family, my grandparents, my parents, my uncle and my aunt who were like yet to be married so that was really really special and like kind of one of the fondest kind of memories and I'm so grateful that I was raised that way because I was like granddad's spoiled little girl and the relationship was interesting with my parents they were more like my mentors and my grandparents were more like the unconditional of parents as we were getting older my parents moved to Seoul and so they were working in a hospital there and so I would only see them on the weekends and I basically moved to schools every like two years my granddad was a high school principal so I kind of moved with him and I mean schooling wise I don't know like I I don't think it really triggers much shock maybe it does but you know really intense academic setting I was you know getting home at like 10 p.m as like a 10 11 year old at home school from like eight to what three and then like and then English academy and then like math academy and you know all these different things but it was fun for me like it wasn't stressful but I I I know that I specifically did terrible in maths and and in English um and I remember I went to this math academy that was like um on the floor above my dad's clinic and um they would post after every test, they would like rank all the students and post the the ranking um, like at the front of the gate, the door. And um, I was always like second or third from the bottom. <laughs> and I would like go tell my dad and be like, oh, I got this award for participation. Like, I'm so proud. <laughs> and then my parents would realize like where I would be in the ranking and just be like, oh, okay. And I think that's like, what really triggered them to like look to migrating elsewhere for my education (laughs) I mean at this point I was like in private school and I think the differences between me and my peers were becoming really like obvious my joy in life was like rollerblading with my friends after school and like (laughs) going to the like equivalent of like what was like a dairy and buying pokemon bread and collecting all the pokemon stickers (laughs) i mean fair enough (laughs) sounds way more fun than studying maths after school i have really fond memories of growing up and i guess in korea we were i guess in like quite a privileged socioeconomic position because both my parents were doctors and i mean my mum and dad you know they would be working they were kind of at the peak of their careers and i really actually didn't really know my dad at all growing up it was kind of like just like a scary figure um, who I used to call him like a flounder fish because <laughs> I would only see him on weekends and he would sleep all weekend long and just um, the only time he would move is to like flip around. <laughs> 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 and he like had a really short temper because of the high stress of the job and all of that. And um, I think my dad kind of was like, okay like we need to intervene and I think I mean as much as I didn't feel the stress my parents were feeling the stress of my poor academic performance (laughs) um 
And my dad had, um, his older sister had been a migrant to the U.S. for a couple of decades at the time. My mum's younger sister had been living in New Zealand for also a couple of decades at the time. <clears throat> so they considered both. I, I think maybe they were considering the U.S. because I was really interested in like art at the time. And my dad's sister was an artist. And so they sent me to like an art camp for like a month. And I think maybe that was like to test me out. And my my aunt said to me, and I don't know if she I don't know if she said it to me directly or to my mom, and then she told me, but basically said, yeah, Erica's talented, but not good enough to make money out of it. <laughs> so I think ever since I heard that, and that really stuck with me, and I loved like, you know, being in art like in school and stuff, but that really stuck with me. So I think I was like, okay, I'm gonna be a doctor instead. <laughs> Because I also always really admired my parents being doctors, like solely for the reason that they got so many presents and um, like, <laughs> and gifts from and like um, and like you know during like um, medals from festival and Lunar New Year and like my mum's mum and dad's like students and nurses always like loved me, so I was like. That sounds like a real cool job. <laughs> Not because they get to like help people, like save lives. Save lives. No, don't, don't care. <laughs> I just want the goods. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get it. I love presents and gifts too. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so it was to give you and your sister better opportunities, essentially? I think my dad primarily wanted us to have a kind of education where it wasn't like we were made to work like factory, you know, factory like robots. And I think he kind of saw this like, you know, discord and seeing like a 10 year old working like, like from 8am to like 10pm. I think he kind of saw that and was like, this is not right. And so um, I think he just wanted a bit of a more, wanted for us like a slightly freer, more, and it's probably the wrong way, but more kind of like happy and like less neoliberal focus on academia and kind of wanted us to do things in a way where we would be able to find the things that we enjoy rather than feel pressured. Like, because the only reason my parents went to med school was because they had the grades. Neither of them wanted to be doctors, um, but they both kind of had this burden from their parents because the generation before them were the generation that like starved from the Korean War. So kind of this social mobility was incredibly important. You know, just before my parents moved back, my dad was saying like his ideal job would be to own like a, like a model shop. You know how those like, those like models for like making little ships and planes. And I was like, you want to be a shopkeeper? And he's like, yeah, I either want to be that or a bus driver. Cause then he gets to like say hi to people. And I was like, well, you really kind of um, chose a very interesting career for um, someone who wants um, that, that wanted that kind of thing. And my mom wanted to be a writer. And so I think, yeah, they, they wanted us to be able to pursue and kind of explore things a little bit around the time because my, my dreams of being an artist was, you know, no longer cancelled. So, you just um, weren't good enough to make money. <laughs> um, so they really supported me um, wanting to be a doctor and going into pre-med and all of that. But they ne- they never pressured me. In fact, my mum always said, why do you want to be a doctor? It's such a shit job. Um, it's so hard. I'm like, why don't you want to be a nurse or like a school teacher? A job that only maybe takes up like 80% of your capacity. And I was like, I mean, thinking back now, I'm like a nurse, 80% capacity. <laughs> um. <laughs> So I read an article that you wrote for RNZ about your experience growing up in New Zealand, um, but also with like your Korean culture and background. And you talked a bit about like the language thing, like speaking, was it like Konglish that you called it? Like sort of a mix of Korean and English. And Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about what it was like for you and your sister growing up in New Zealand and all the ways that you tried to navigate the different cultures mm. I think man that article really gets around I feel like it, it's one that I <laughs> it's one that I wrote on a whim and met really super like met really cool people while I was writing it 
And to be honest, the only reason I wrote it was because it was going to take so long to turn it into an academic publication. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I just want this out. <laughs> um, what was it like growing up here? Uh, I mean, I think I was just, I was really naive. Um, as you know, as most kids are, I kind of, I didn't anticipate to experience any racism or anything. I was mostly like sad leaving all of my friends back in Korea, but I was also excited and I was quite an extroverted kid. And I think I've always lived in this kind of grand delusion of my capabilities. So like in the, I don't know, maybe the early five, six years in New Zealand, you see, so when I first moved to New Zealand, I had just learned the alphabet and I was like reading, you know, textbooks that was teaching me how to say, hello, how are you? I'm good. And you like that kind of stuff. And so when I was kind of thrown into the school, for some reason, I never thought I was bad at English. I just thought I was fluent the entire time. <laughs> um, and I think that helped with my confidence and um, my aunt was living in uh, West Auckland at the time. So we were in um, Henderson living with her and my dad had stayed behind. So it was just my mom, me and my sister. And I went to St. Dominic's College in West Auckland, which was like a half private school. It was Catholic as well. Um, and I think at the time there were very, very, very few um, Korean international students. So I basically had no chance to speak Korean. And I think that combined with <clears throat> my my grand delusion that I'm just like fluent. <laughs> I love that, uh, by the way. <laughs> uh, I don't know where it came from. <laughs> like I look back at like the diary entries I've written and I'm like, this is just like, it makes no sense. <laughs> um, so actually the first couple of years in New Zealand, I had a really lovely time. I, ha- I made best friends and um who are still who I you know keep keep tabs on Facebook and stuff but at the same time I had that kind of I don't know if I put it in the article but I had this one encounter where you know I learned that I was Asian Mm. so um you know reflecting back it was interesting because the school had a lot of Maori and Pacifica students and it was actually there were a couple there was this particular group of like mean girls who were like the coolest girls at school and they all happened to be um pacifica and they were the ones that would just kind of incessantly pick on me and um that's when I kind of learned like oh like you're so Asian or like go back to your country you you fob and you know I didn't know what that meant and but at the time the only thing I picked up was the word Asian and I guess that was kind of an awakening of my racial consciousness, like the tones and the derogative way in which that was used kind of gestured to me like, oh, okay. So being an Asian is something, it's like a swear word. And it's something that I don't want to be something I want to, I don't want to be associated with. Um, And I remember, I don't think I've ever been so angry in my life, like very few times that I'm just completely enraged, but I think I was so enraged because I was really like upset and I was, wanted to speak back at them, but I couldn't because my English wasn't good. And, um, and then they were like making fun of me because I couldn't speak back and I was kind of stuttering. And I remember coming home and I was just like bawling and I couldn't really explain it to my mom, like what had gone down. And I don't think I knew really, I, I, don't, I don't think I really knew cognitively like what had actually happened but it was like a real real moment of I guess like my racial awakening of like realizing oh okay you know because growing up in Korea I'm just normal I'm I'm a kind of nothing and then here it has a particular label because of the way I look and that has a particular social meaning in the society I think maybe my younger sister picked it up a bit earlier than I did um, we, we've never talked about it, but she was very introverted as a kid mm. and she actually didn't speak for the first two years that we were here. And my mom was concerned that, you know, that she spoke no English, but I don't know, just like one day she was speaking and she was fluent and we we're like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> His you yeah. was like, you're like 
grand ideas of how important you were, but you actually weren't. And then your sister, who was like not speaking for the first two years, but was secretly just like really fluent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she was always the more literary, literary type. So we were like, oh, okay. So she's just be like silently like taking notes and just like mastering the language while I've just been like playing dramatically. <laughs> oh that is so funny (laughs) Uh, and I think I you know for the that was I think a kind of one real a moment that I will never forget like be like learning that I was Asian um and that's I think always defined the way that I kind of went about you know living since then and similarly to in Korea I also moved to schools every kind of two years and in New Zealand as well so after St. Dominic's College, I went to Rangitwa Weber College on North Shore. And there were a lot of um, international students there from Korea. But I, and I don't think I did this consciously, but I think it was maybe like a survival thing. Like I wanted to fit in with the, the cool kids, the elite tiers. Um, and of course they were all white. And um I, yeah, actually, I think, you know, although my closest friends now are from Rangitata College, it's actually an extremely traumatic time because I was always the only Asian person in that social group. And so I was part of all the Asian jokes. Um, also, all the Korean, the international Korean students hated me because they were like, oh, she's like too cool for us and she only hangs out with white people. So they would always give me dirty looks. And then I never really felt like I fit in with my friends because they always didn't understand an aspect of my identity. So I think looking back in terms of like overt racism, I probably got it the most from my friends. And I never had the tools or, you know, people to guide me who told me like it's unacceptable to say those things to people and here's like what you can say back. I never knew what to say back. I just, you know, laughed it off and, you know, that all too familiar kind of painful, like, haha, yeah, okay. And I yeah. think it was it was only like maybe when I was extremely drunk and by the time or like I was like already at university, that's when I would be like just kind of stop them and be like, that's not fucking funny. Mm. but that also took so much guts I just I I had no mentors um yeah so it was very much kind of navigating things blind and very very confusing and also the way that I dressed and did my makeup didn't really code as typically Asian either um or Korean so I always felt really kind of never enough not quite belonging anywhere um not always ostracized um and you know and I I always had this longing like I wish I would just fit really neatly into one thing and I really longed for that um but I didn't yeah have the words to articulate those thoughts to anyone nor did I have anyone to talk about it with it's interesting because I was also reading one of your essays that you've written. I did a lot of stalking before mm-hmm. our recording. Um, <laughs> it's and, research. <laughs> yeah, yeah, research. <laughs> um, and you talk about this, about how when you're growing up, you kind of approached it like you you saw Western cultures like separate and you, to your Korean identity and mm-hmm. you were sort of like an ethnic drag queen you use yes. that term in your essay. <laughs> yeah. um, and you tried so hard to keep the two identities separate can you talk mm-hmm. a bit about that yeah um I mean to a point where like I was literally petrified to go outside the house without like my eyeliner and like my clothes at home I was still wearing like I mean, at home, I was just wearing track pants and like giant t-shirts and bun and things like that. And I think I, I think that was maybe the vulnerable side of me that I didn't know how to protect. Like I didn't know how to protect myself if I would be, if I was to have an interaction where I would experience some kind of discrimination. And I guess kind of putting on the clothes, putting on the makeup was like a protective mechanism looking, you know, looking fierce and, it really did feel like, you know, at the end of that, I'd come home and take off the makeup. It really, it really did feel like some kind of, kind of a drag performance, you know? And 
I think, yeah, the my efforts to keep them separate was, I think, to protect myself because it just hurts so much to experience that interpersonal form of um, discrimination that um, I kind of prevented that by, from happening by putting on a really strong front and a particular personality that didn't reflect the entirety of who I was so that even if it does get injured, I can just come home and be like, well, okay, that was her. Yeah. And at home I can be this and no one has, no one, no one has access to this basically. Yeah. It it makes a lot of sense. And there was a line that you wrote about how you did this in order to stop people from questioning your authenticity. So like, and that is like a reflection of the fact that you felt neither nor, nor that wait what's the phrase neither nor nor here no yes <laughs> sure you know what yeah. I mean so neither neither like Kiwi nor like fully yeah. Korean yeah um yeah. yeah and do you feel like there was a stage in your life where you were able to move beyond that I think I mean it was definitely maybe three four years into my university studies so when I went to uni you know, because I wanted to go to med school, I was in pre-med and then in my first year, didn't get in, was devastated, had like an identity crisis. And then for the second and third year in my university years, I just did a lot of wandering and exploring and I was probably extremely depressed. (laughs) And I kind of happened to, I don't know, actually maybe think it was maybe my fifth year in university. I took a lot of time on and off and, um, I think we talked about this last time we spoke. It was when I took that sociology paper, Ethnicity and Identity. And that paper really gave me the tools to give form to the feelings and the experience that I had into words and for me to be able to articulate those experiences very clearly. And so one of those essays, I think it was the yellow or more, the experience of growing up 1.5, Korean New Zealander that was the essay that I wrote for that class so that was an incredible kind of you don't have a turning point um, because I was finally able to give form and like make sense of what I was experiencing and and actually writing that essay was extremely traumatic (laughs) because I had to kind of reckon with because I think the essay prompt asked the students to um, reflect on their racial identity their ethnic identity and their national identity And so that kind of pushed me to reflect back on kind of the most triggering and traumatic events in my life um, to identify where those um, consciousnesses came to be. And um, I was kind of like weeping and really, I guess, embodying and mourning kind of the trauma of that. And I think, and I see this a lot of the times when I teach my students too, they they become really overwhelmed. Like sometimes, you know, these terms and concepts can be really empowering because they it's a tool for us to articulate what we experience. But also there's a massive kind of catharsis when you're able to name it and grief because you, I don't know, you're kind of looking face to face with it um, and in a way that can be communicated to other people. And I, I guess kind of addressing oppression, understanding it and trying to, come up with ways of how we can change these systemic forms of oppression, I guess is in very much in alignment with the kind of theories that I engage with and also very kind of um, typical of sociology. It's always looking to progress society, um, challenge oppression and oppressive ideologies and so on. And I guess that manifests, I think, in multiple different ways. And one of the big questions that a lot of kind of grad students and academics always talk about is, you know, should academics be activists as well? And there's always that guilt, like as people in the academic space, should we also be on the picket line? Um, and if we're not, are we uh, hypocrites? Are we um, just a bunch of elites, um, you know, kind of moral signaling and so on? And I've had a lot of um, discussions about this with lots of other people. And I think my kind of thinking on it at the moment is that, teaching in itself is kind of an act of resistance and the ways in which you build relationships and empower other people. I have been to protests and been involved in situations that try to tackle systemic forms of, you know, um, discrimination. 
and I just know that it's not where I do my best work. I just burn out and um in burning out, I end up asking too much from other people. So other people have to look after me. And I know that there are people who absolutely thrive and just do fantastic work in these activist spaces. One person that comes to mind is Justine Sachs, a really good friend of mine. She's working at the Nurses Union, but, and, but we did our graduate studies together. And she, you know, up there at the front of the line with a, the megaphone, she does amazing things. And I think we just play to our own strengths. And I think my, yeah, my contribution is, is teaching. Yeah, um, that's a really interesting point that you bring up because I interviewed the organizer of the Stop Asian Hate March, uh, which we actually, the first, that's when we, like the first time we met, like it was yes. at an event before that. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I, I ended up interviewing Steph. In that conversation, we talked a bit about what does change look like and what does activism look like and we talked about it in the context of the hesitancy that a lot of people have towards taking part in things like rallies and protests and whether it's just like you say like moral signaling or um what is it that term like sort of like fake activism um Mm, when you say that you care yeah performative activism yes um (laughs) when you say that you care about a certain issue but you don't show up for it or you don't do anything really meaningful to support those issues or causes what are some of the different ways you think people can support a cause or be an activist without necessarily like going out with a megaphone and like yelling things Mm -hmm. and taking part in marches and things like that I think it sounds really corny but I think engaging in the, the movement in a way that brings you joy and I think that's really hard because a lot of the times oppression is always around trauma and grief and pain and I was talking to my good friend Nayan Lee who's a director based in Auckland and, you know, she was saying to me, I'm so sick of this trauma narrative. There's a victim narrative. I want us to live. Like, why are we just reproducing this death cycle for our community? Like, why are we hoping for this future? And yet in the present, we are constantly living in in the narrative of victimization. And I think there's a time and a place. And I think everyone's on their different on different journeys. Sometimes you do have to be with your trauma and face it. Sometimes you kind of go beyond it and try to be in more of a healing space. And I think having been through the trauma and the pain and the grief, not that that's a linear thing, I think it's cyclical. I think um, engaging in activism in a way that you find fulfilling and nourishing, I think is really important and to not sacrifice yourself for the bigger cause because change is slow, like change is really slow. We're not going to see racism disappear in our generation. It's also not something that disappears. I think it's just um, there are go- there are always going to be oppressive modes and the faces of that will just change with time. And, I mean, that's the beauty of, you know, human progress is that the only constant is change. And so I think not not seeing kind of social change as having an end goal, but seeing more as a commitment to an ongoing thing and that there is no goal, that there is no such thing as utopia. Because I think as soon as we hold on to that idea of utopia, things can become really uh, prescriptive and dogmatic. And, you know, I talk about this a lot with my friends, how toxic leftist activist spaces can be because there is so much surveilling and box ticking that people are watching that you're doing you know when there's a crisis or are they posting on their instagram story about it um are they talking about this and then you know like shaming and outing people like oh like if you were talking about um stop Asian hate. Like, why aren't you talking about the crisis in Afghanistan? Why aren't you talking about, um, you know, Tejiriti or Waitangi and so on? And I think we we can't do everything. We can't do everything. And I think maybe the first step is accepting for ourselves that we can't do everything and that it's enough for you to constantly be learning and speak up when you have the capacity and show solidarity in ways 
that are meaningful to you and also engaging in actions. You know, I think there's a, like you said, there's a huge element of activism where like it doesn't count unless you can see it. And I think that's incredibly unhelpful. <laughs> like I think even doing like personal decolonization work by trying to like learn about what are the internalized, you know, oppressive ideologies that like I am reproducing. I think that's activism. I think that's social change because you're really breaking, you know, generational trauma and generational habits of self-destruction. It's really hard though. It's really hard because I know, especially in activist spaces, when you don't show up and when you don't signal these things, there's a big backlash. And I think for that reason, and I, I'm, I'm really sensitive. So for that reason, like I consciously chose to um, not be too involved in that kind of activism and instead try to focus and trying to constantly um, find out what, what are the forms of activism that I can do that are meaningful, knowing that we are never going to be perfect. We're always learning and um, always willing to admit mistakes. I mean, of course we're going to make mistakes and, and ideas are changing all the time. You know, probably the things that I said 10 years ago would be extremely problematic, but I think it's as long as you're able to say, well, that was me then, but I'm not also a constant person. I'm always learning too. And, being generous um, in that kind of humility with others, I think, is really important in engaging in whatever activism, you know, quote unquote, activism work that one one engages in, and trying to find pace with it. But I think, honestly, ultimately, I think you can't do any effective, whatever effective means, form of activism unless you have done the work for yourself. Like, you know, there's that saying, like, hurt people, hurt other people. And I've seen this and experienced this firsthand. Even even people with the best of intentions um, in these spaces trying to push for um, change. And so I think, I, I don't know, going to therapy, having conversations, you know, learning and reading books and doing that work on a personal level, I think is also, I think that's a great place to start. Have you heard of the term boba liberalism? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> um i think i mean i get the gist of what it is <laughs> yeah so i had never heard of it until recently i think i only literally saw it like maybe a day or two ago and i can't remember how i came across it and i just mm-hmm. i just find it such an interesting concept so um if I just read what I've like got from Google, um, yeah. so it's basically defined as the substantless trend chasing spectacle that is mainstream Asian American <laughs> liberalism, derided <sighs> as shallow consumerist capitalist and robbed of meaning. Um, mm-hmm. What? What? <clears throat> do you have any thoughts around that? <laughs> <laughs> I think. Um... I think that's all that's how a lot of people do activism. Um, but also I think there are some I don't think it's completely substantialist because it's similar to that uh, those arguments around representation. You know, like when Crazy Rich Asians came out, it was like there was kind of that big debate about it, this is a huge win for Asian American representation, but also it was just like Asian people plastered onto like that patriarchal like Cinderella story narrative whilst marginalizing um, South Asian people in the movies, reproducing neoliberal ideologies and so on. But I, I don't think that means that it's completely valueless though, because I do think, and I think we can have more than one, like we don't have to have one way of doing activism. And we like, why are we on the left always fucking trying to like rip each other apart being like, <laughs> yeah. this is the right way to do activism. It's like, <laughs> why don't we just spend the energy like chilling out together, eating meals together, building relationships and just accepting that there are lots of different ways of doing this. Of course, you know, this <laughs> boba liberalism is, I think as long as it's not the end all be all, it's okay. 
because I think representation does matter. I mean, growing up, my only role models were Lucy Liu. I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be a Charlie's Angel when I grew up. And then the other one was Christina Yang from Grey's Anatomy. Maybe that's why I was so diehard set on wanting to be a doctor because <laughs> she, she was the only role model and she was a doctor. Um, and having no representation really minimizes your sense of self because you don't see yourself reflected back from society you're invisible and I think especially for in the sphere of representation underrepresented communities like the Asian community no wonder we have this kind of um, model minority myth you know we are constantly that that's been the community's coping mechanism and when you see that mirrored and repeatedly experience it through kind of erasure of our um, subjectivities they, you know, we, we come to internalize that we are nothing and we don't exist in this world. And so there are, you know, there have been representation, this kind of increase in representation, even if it is through something like boba liberalism, <laughs> um, I think has in a way, I don't know, maybe has, would have given a different kind of experience growing up in the Western world for the Asian diaspora than the one that I had. Because the one that I had was that, I just didn't exist in the society. Um, whereas I feel like now, with especially with social media, it just feels like there's more. Like at least there are some op- options that people can choose um, in, in choosing their role models. You know, you asked me earlier, like what my experience was like growing up in Korea. And it just reminded me that, you know, growing up in Korea, everything was like, if you do something not good enough, you get punished. I'm sure there's like a psychological term for it, but what I've learned about myself and about through my experience with teaching is that that is not the way that you get students or people to want to learn and change. You encourage them on the things that they're doing well and offer, what about this too? Like also this, instead of being like, what you're doing is fucked up. Like, please stop. You're canceled. Mm. Um, <laughs> um, yes, cancellation culture is also another completely like different <laughs> own topic. <laughs> yes, yes. So I wanted to go back to a, a point that you were talking about before about celebrating the joy more, and I wanted to ask you a question around what does it look like in practice and reality to shift the focus from pain and trauma into celebrating daily joys? I I don't know if it's a linear thing, but I also feel like I would not be in a space to consider to folk, have my focus on joy and healing had I not gone through like extreme trauma <laughs> um, and reckoned with it. And I think for me, the academic space has been my, my space to do that. Like reading works by like Franz Fanon, like Black Skin, White Mask, that kind of the articulation, the kind of, it's almost violent the way in which how he accurately describes the pro, the experience of being racialized. It was just like, oh my God, I feel that so hard. And after reading that book, I mean, I could only read a couple of pages and then I would have to like, be in bed for days just crying um and that was you know very much the same with actually every kind of um essay that I've written or research that I've done it's always very traumatic because it kind of um my research and writing is very reflexive and I always kind of include my own experience in it and I think I got to a point where I am I think I am now at a point where I have it's not like all the trauma's gone, but I've felt enough of it. And now I want more. So I, I like, I did a lot of crying, a lot of, um, you know, hating on people like in my mind and a lot of self-destructive things. Um, and now I think I'm trying to find joy by, not trying to take life so seriously and trying to take my mum's advice, which is try to approach life at about a 60, 40 capacity. So make the, the best that you're offering the world, 
have that at around 60% of what you can give. Because I think at the time that she gave me the advice, I was struggling so much. I was so burnt out and I was constantly just like whipping myself for not being good enough. And and then she kind of said, try 60-40 and then see what happens. See if like the world falls apart or if you get fired or um, if people start like, I don't know, harassing you. So I did that about for about, I don't know, a couple of weeks. And it was just like life changing because nothing changed. No one noticed. <laughs> um, and in fact, I realized it was like totally enough. And I mean, I wouldn't say that I've been practicing 60-40 for the past like five weeks in lockdown. I've been very much like 200-0, 200-0. I <laughs> <laughs> feel like the balance um, there is a little off. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but, and then in the 40, trying to do things that are not work. And for me, that has been, I mean, it cracks me up that we keep coming back to this, but for me, that's been like doing craft, like art things. Mm. <laughs> You just won't let it go. <laughs> so um, I've been painting, um, and this was actually at at the encouragement of Nyan, um, the director who director and friend who was telling me about you know I'm so fucking sick of paint like let's feel joy, and also my um, good friend and artist uh, Kusha Donaldson who said painting is like writing an essay it's just another form of self expression and. You don't have to make it perfect. So I've been painting. Um, I don't know. I guess things that I used to do in my childhood. I've been trying to learn, like skipping rope, tri- like oh, tricks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, speaking of skipping ropes, completely random. But I randomly <laughs> saw um, like the ropeless skipping ropes. Have you seen those? Yes. <laughs> yes, I have. Yeah. And I'm kind of like, do they work? Like, what is the point? Isn't like the whole point of like skipping rope the fear of like tripping on the rope so you like jump higher? <laughs> oh my god, the fear! <laughs> I, you know, I think to now that you mentioned fear, I think to boil it down, I think the main way in which I've been trying to experience joy and put it into practice is to not live reactively, but more proactively. So not do things out of fear, but out of like conscious choice. And it's, it's fucking, it's fucking hard. Like, I think because I'm so conditioned to feel trauma and just, I feel like the normal should be that I feel like I'm constantly devastated and living under this, like living like, like I'm always drowning that this is all very new. I mean, you know, even having conversations like this now, I mean, this brings me joy. Um, Mm, I'm glad. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know. I guess, um, yeah, just, uh, do less, try less. <laughs> Enjoy life more. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, I guess, all the, yeah. Yeah. It, it kind of goes to the whole, like, would you say it's the same or similar to the whole rest is resistance? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, I mean, especially under capitalism, we're expected to work, especially now that we're all working from home, work all the time. So to resist that and say, actually, no, I'm not attending to my emails outside of nine to five. I'm not going to be available on the weekends. I'm drawing hard boundaries. That is a form of resistance and actively taking rests and looking after yourself, I think is a form of, you know, social resistance. You also mentioned in our catch up earlier that, or rather the topic around like reclaiming knowledge of your own ancestors and sort of the question around like where is my land like is it Aotearoa is it Korea Mm -hmm. where are you at in terms of that journey I think I've I'm at a point where you know this discourse around decolonization I think I struggle with it a lot especially in the academic space because it is always um I never saw myself and my community reflected in those discussions you know it's always Maori Pākehā and um, land um, being returned to Tangata Whenua and I always felt like I I totally support this and I feel really aligned but also like I feel like there's no like where am I in this like I know our community also experiences oppression um, be it as legacies of settler colonialism so I think you know that I mean that's kind of the main line 
line of questions that I went down for my master's thesis. It's like, how do we, how do as people of a diaspora um, living in a land of settler colonial history, think about decolonization and how do we do decolonization? Because I for sure know that my kind of subconscious thinking is racist. It is, you know, sexist and it is classist so how do I do that in a way um and also in a way that's specific to our own kind of collective psychic condition because you know like there are particular imageries of the way in which like Asian women are represented in media and I would like to undo that but that kind of conversation and point of actions are not present in dominant dominant discourses around decolonization in Aotearoa Linking back to what I said, I guess it's more of a personal kind of form of decolonization um, whilst taking into account the history and the positionality of where you are in the particular society that you occupy. We talked a bit about decolonization and I realised that people who listen to this are probably on very different journeys or they're very different parts of their journeys. What does decolonizing your own thinking look like and how do they do that? Thinking about decolonization in a way that can be translated into action, we maybe a good place to start is thinking about coloniality as kind of a, both a historical fact and an ongoing fact, like material reality, and also something that is happening on like an ideological sense. So both kind of um, forms of oppression on both like the material and in kind of the more like thinking aspect as well. And when we think about that, we are all, we are all subjects of coloniality. And right now the dominant colonial ideologies and the the systems that are being that are upheld is capitalism, neoliberalism, white supremacy, um, ableism, um, patriarchy, and so on. Um, so I think first step is identifying those big structures and overarching things that oppress us and learning how it operates. Because when you know what hurts you, you know how to, res- at least you know how to prepare yourself and you know what you're dealing with. And so I think diagnosing and learning what that is and then beginning to identify how that manifests in your own thinking and in your own um, interactions with other people in maybe the institutions that you're embedded in, whether it be a company, a community, a university, and just um, observing it. And I think becoming aware and conscious of it, I think, is probably the next step. And then in, in the way of how do we undo it, you know, we can't we can't say, oh, I don't support this ideology, therefore, like, poof, be gone. You know, <laughs> like, it doesn't work yeah. like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I think it's more about maybe o- overloading yourself over time with things that you feel more aligned with. So, like, you know, we can't erase things that have conditioned us, that we have been conditioned into society, but we can bring new things. And when there are enough new things, the thing that was dominant before no longer becomes dominant. I think for me, that's the definition of kind of living and acting decolonially is to um, bring in things that challenge kind of the superior status of a particular thinking in a way that doesn't cancel it, but in a way that overcrowds it so that other thinking systems can come into place. And over time, that might not be good enough either, and it'll constantly change. Decolonizing kind of our collective psyche for the Asian community in particular, you know, I think understanding like Orientalism as one of the ruling ideologies, how the East has been kind of fetishized and objectified and reading about, and I think this is incredibly painful work, identifying and coming to reckon and accept the various tropes and the subsequent kind of violent histories that followed from that. So, you know, like the the obedient meek, Asian woman or the hypersexualized Asian woman. And, you know, that we see throughout 
kind of Western colonial history or in the forms of um, how like Korean women have been used as like sex slaves um, for like U.S. military and just, you know, just violence as, as kind of arising from that kind of particular thinking. And, and, you know, take your time, take your time with it. You can't, you can't do all of this overnight. Also leaning into your community, like, you know, that space that was organized by Helen um, at Asian Feminist Collective. And usually when I turn up to these like activist organized things, I always feel really uncomfortable and really like, you know, like I have to perform to something and, you know, like I can only say a certain things, but I really felt so seen and heard and I cried so much and I usually like I I, ne- I never do like I um I always cry alone <laughs> um so I think you know even even that was just like wow like what an incredible space that was organized and upheld for us and and just yeah leaning into that and, I, and that really made me feel like oh wow I feel like I am part of a community and there are really fucking awesome people in our community. Yes. Yeah, I 100% agree. Like I, before I went to that event, I hadn't ever really gone to anything like that before. And I was really Mm. like unsure whether I wanted to go, but ultimately just really glad that I ended up going because I met so many like cool people like yourself and like the other people who are there and Helen and um, like her team just really like created such a nice safe space for us to just be not like racialized asian woman (laughs) yeah 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 i just also want to say thank you for reaching out and for the space for us to talk and and the podcast that you're doing like that's also fucking cool you're one of the fucking cool people that i see on my feed i'm like (laughs) oh yes (laughs) (laughs) oh thank you so much for that um no I, i really appreciate you taking the time to like share everything that you shared with me um I think that you're so smart and like so well spoken but also have so many great ideas and knowledge and I'm really grateful that you have taken the time to share that with me and also with my audience thank you so much for listening and a special shout out to Erica for the wonderful open conversation if you would like to follow her work or learn more about her you can visit her website or follow her on Instagram I will link both of those things in the episode show notes as always please rate and subscribe or follow on Instagram at not your token minority podcast mm-hmm.